Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning and Merry Christmas, everybody. It's wonderful to see you. So many familiar faces or masks and <laughs> some new masks also. Yeah, you're yeah, a brave lot. I didn't expect so many people to turn up in this court. <laughs> and I was just in the Bahamas a couple of days ago, where if it went below 70, they'd apologize for the cold. <laughs> I was giving talks, not on a cruise. <laughs> so, the Christmas talk, I know the subject was... Uh, teachings of Jesus Christ, but that's generally the sort of a placeholder that we put up every time. In some sense, I am switching the subject. I thought I'd do something a little different this time instead of directly, you know, reading from the uh, Sermon on the Mount. What I thought I'll do today is a book which is not so well known, um, and I've never talked about it earlier. This book is called the Chapters on Prayer, The Practicos and Chapters on Prayer, by Evagrius Ponticus. If that sounds like a character from Asterix and Obelix, <laughs> you wouldn't be wrong. He was an ancient Roman. Uh, more about him later. This book, I was introduced to this book by Professor Stephanie Paulsell, who was my professor at, at Harvard three years ago, and I really liked this book. It was written about 1,600 years ago, 1,700 years ago, um, by this uh, desert, desert monk, one of the early desert, uh, not the desert fathers, one after that. And uh, uh, it's written in a particular style, which was common in those days. If you wanted to write a book of instructions, spiritual instructions, you would write maybe a hundred points. There would be sentences. So, for example, this book is called Chapters on Prayer. These are not really chapters. These are 153 instructions, maybe one sentence or two sentences each. In our own tradition, we have a book like this. Swami Virajanandaji, he wrote a book, Towards the Gold Supreme. That's the English translation. In Bengali, it is Paramartha Prashanga. It's about 352 instructions like it's the sort of he has poured his heart out he was a great sadhaka all his life he practiced meditation and japa and so all his experiences his instructions for uh, spiritual seekers i think every sincere seeker would really benefit from that book and this book is also like that smaller 153 uh, instructions so a little bit so yes teachings of jesus christ in one sense, it's the same subject, because just about all of this is based on the teachings of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> a little bit about Evagrius, because someone we don't know about. He um, was in the old Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, he was born in what is now modern Turkey, and his father was um, a bishop of the church, and uh, he also joined the church. He was very, um, he, he was a very well-read young boy, and he immediately took to the intellectual life of the uh, Catholic priesthood. And uh, there, at that time, in the Eastern Roman Empire, the big city was the capital, Constantinople. So he ultimately ended up in Constantinople, um, 
uh, in the church there, and he rose up in the hierarchy. He was an assistant to the archbishop there, uh, who relied on him greatly. We hear about him that uh, his intellectual abilities, his abilities of uh, head and heart, uh, how he preached and became very uh, famous, and he dealt with the affairs of the church very well, very skillfully. So he rose very high, but he was dissatisfied, and he felt he was compromising on his spiritual uh, search. So one night, he had this uh, dream, very, very vivid dream, where he takes an oath that he will go away to Jerusalem for the rest of his life and only dedicate his life to seeking God, spiritual practice. You know, when he woke up, he thought, well, it was a dream, but I really did take that oath. So that very day, he set sail. He left everything and he set sail for Jerusalem. He ended up in Jerusalem. Lots of pilgrims used to go to Jerusalem those days. Um, so there was... Uh, in Jerusalem those days, a very wise, uh, devout lady, Melania. Not the first lady, not uh, Trump, <laughs> Melania. Uh, many people are named after this Melania. This uh, She was very well known among the Christian pilgrims who would come. So she was also a Roman lady, aristocratic, widowed. She was very rich and she had started, endowed and started a convent with about 15 nuns, which she guided herself. She devoted herself to spiritual practice and helping pilgrims. And one thing she did was, when she saw some young men who wanted to become monks, so she would help them. She had connections with the desert fathers, um, you know, the early group of Christian ascetics who went out into the Egyptian desert and uh, practiced austerities all their life. So she would guide these uh, promising young men, and she saw that this Evagrius was really promising. So she told him that you should become a monk and live your rest of your life. You, since you want to search for God all your life and you don't want anything else, then do this. He agreed and she took him to a group of monks whom she supported, gave money, and she was highly regarded. We, heard of, uh, we hear of one old monk who was the leader of that group. And he was so austere. The only thing we hear about him was that he would weave baskets and he would sell them in the market and whatever he got, that was enough to pay for himself and um, his community of monks. So when he died, he left his sole possession to Melania, which was the basket that he had woven that morning. So <laughs> that's all he owned in the world. Evagrius came to this very austere community. And very soon, again, he rose in that community because of the qualities of his head and heart. And he became the leader of that community, and he remained so till the end of his days there. Um, we hear about how austere he himself was. They were a very austere lot, the whole group. He, um, how he would stand in the cold of the desert night in a uh, well full of cold water to uh, you know, overcome desires, to overcome lust. Uh, how he, in fact, till almost the end of his life, he ate only raw vegetables, what he could get. Um, only at the, towards the end of his life, his digestion failed him. Then only he started eating a little bit of cooked food. Um, he guided the other monks also. And there are interesting uh, little um, you know, anecdotes, which he has himself left behind. For example, how he saw, how he himself was corrected, because he was such a good preacher. I mean, he would uh, give good talks, and he wrote books also uh, in the desert. So once he heard of another great monk, Macarius the Elder, I think. So he said that I want to go and meet him, and he went and met him. And that time, the way you would, would approach a spiritual teacher like that was, you would ask the customary way of 
uh, asking for something was, give me some advice by which I can save my soul. So he went and bowed down to this monk, and he said, give me some advice by which I can s save my soul. Remember, who's asking? This is quite the intellectual among the monks, and going around giving talks, you know. Give me some advice by which I can save my soul. And Macarius looked at him and said, if you want to save your soul, then don't talk unless someone asks a question. <laughs> and Evagrius was so upset by this at first, but then he realized this is exactly the kind of advice that I need. You know? uh, he understood. He didn't stop giving talks, and, but he understood. that. Uh, so this is the way monks teach. You know? I remember one senior monk of our order who told me, um, who, who did enormous work, and he's still doing enormous work. I won't name him. I mean, just the kind of workload that he has is unthinkable, and putting up with so many difficulties uh, in establishing huge ashrams and all. So he told me how he learned to, to tolerate and to not become upset. He said that when I was a young brahmachari in an ashram, I used to write to Swami Dhireshananda, who was a very great monk of our order, who lived in Haridwar, in our ashram there, Kankal. And in those days, you would write a postcard, and then an answer would come by a postcard, and the whole thing would take um, two months maybe, or one month at least. Which, by the way, is still faster than much, much of my backlogged email. <laughs> <coughs> so, he wrote, he wrote uh, in Bengali, I'll translate for you, he wrote that, um, that people are in this ashram are behaving so badly, I can't put up with it anymore. And he wrote like that. And then the answer came. He expected some comfort, support. And the answer was one line, a one-liner. And it said, remember, there are those who put up with you too. <laughs> and he said, I was so stunned. Many are putting up with you also. Then he said, I was so upset at this at first. And then it just revolutionized me. It, it changed my whole uh, approach. You know. Another monk, same kind of problem, uh, who I have seen him work tremendous hours at our uh, main monastery, the kitchen. It's probably the toughest place. There are times every day you have to feed 500 to 1,000 people four times a day, and God help you. Even Thakur cannot help you if uh, if you miss the dining hall bell by even 30 seconds. You know, if it's just off, you'll get so much criticism. And if you do everything goes well, nobody's going to praise you. That's the problem of running a kitchen. So he does that, and on on festive days, you have to feed 30 to 40 thousand people. I asked him, how do you do it? It's, he was sitting next to me. He was one of the calmest people. I know he has a hot temper, but he was one of the calmest people I've ever seen. How do you not lose your temper? So he said, when I was a brahmacharya novice in our ashram in Shillong, which is in Meghalaya, and he said, one day I was upset and a senior monk called me aside and said, what's wrong? I said, somebody said something and I feel bad. And... He, and uh, then the senior monks did this. <laughs> I asked, what's that? I said, brush it off. Brush it off. Every day at the end of the day, brush it off. And he said, I have practiced that, literally. At the end of the day, I brush off the whole day. Good, bad, some people have praised me, some have criticized me. It's all gone. I offer it all, and I'm free of it. And that's how I do it. 
Um, so Evagrius, a few stories we know about him. His passing was also very peaceful. In, in the last days, he was a man of great peace. People came to him for advice, uh, monks and lay devotees alike. And it is said that when he, the day came for him to pass, he told his followers to carry him to a nearby church where he received the Holy Communion and passed away quietly. He was, was only 55, I think, at that time. So, 1,400 years ago, this um, Roman Catholic priest and then monk, he has written this book, Chapters on Prayer. Now, how are we to take this? It's like prayer, japa, meditation. We are always told that keep your mind on God. Keep your mind on God continuously. So how do we keep our mind on God continuously? How do you think about God continuously? That's the subject. So it's not just prayer. You might say, I do japa. I don't do prayer like that. Or you might say, I try meditation. I don't do prayer like that. All right. All of this still applies to whether you are doing prayer, you are trying to remember God, you are trying to repeat the name of God, you are trying to do meditation. All of this, the basic principles apply all the same. Very beautiful um, advice. And born of a person who actually practiced this for decades and decades. Like the philosopher Schopenhauer, I love it when he says, Are your words born of more words or are they born of silence? So here are words which are coming from silence, a holy silence. So, how do you pray without wavering, living constantly with God, without intermediary? These are his words. I'll read out selections and comment on them. If Moses, when he attempted to draw near the burning bush, was prohibited until he should remove the shoes from his feet, how should you not free yourself? of every thought that is colored by passion, seeing that you wish to see the one who is beyond thought and perception. How beautiful. I didn't know this, that we all know Moses approached the burning bush, you know. Uh, There's the sort of a founding story of a crucial moment in the development of Judaism. But that he was asked to remove the shoes, you know, take off the shoes before he would come to the bush, burning bush. I didn't know that. So, in India, um, you know, you, you're asked to take off your shoes all the time. You, you get, get to the point where you wonder why you're asked to wear shoes anyway to begin with. <laughs> but it's true. When you approach a holy place, you take off the shoes. But the meaning of that is, as you leave your shoes outside the temple, as you leave your shoes outside a meditation room, a sanctum, sanctorum. Similarly, when you approach God, leave, leave your worldly personality outside. As we take off the shoes, take off the fact, when you approach God, take off the fact that you are a father or a mother, that you are a company executive, that maybe somebody that, uh, maybe that I am sick or I am unhappy or I am depressed or I really, really want something in this world. Just let that off. Let's take it off before you enter and come to God just as a lover of God. And he gives a deeper reason why. Very Vedantic reason. He says, you are seeking one who is beyond thought and perception. So if you come to God clouded by thought and perception, how are you going to get to him? 
So step aside from all thoughts of the world and just come to God as a lover of God. You will see, you will, we will enjoy our prayer, our communion with God. It will be a deeper communion, more profound and more, uh, more enriching that way. The next, pray first for the gift of tears so that by means of sorrow you may soften your native rudeness. Then having confessed your sins to the Lord, you will obtain pardon for them. Pray with tears and your request will find a hearing. Nothing so gratifies the Lord as supplication offered in the midst of tears. Very true. One of the um, things, you know, principles understood in the bhakti tradition is that when wax is heated and it melts, then you put a stamp upon it and the stamp is retained and the wax is, wax is soft, the stamp is retained. Similarly, it's in times of deep emotion. You know, the idea in India is tapasya. Tapa means heat. Sorrow generates heat. Heat means, or literally heat also, but also a psychic uh, concentration, heat. It, it dissolves our inner hardness. He puts it very nicely, your native rudeness. Our callousness, our material nature is for a, for a time being softened. At that time, if you pray to God, if you hold on intensely to God, it has a benefit. Not only he says God listens to you, but also we stamp it deep into our, uh, our psyche. That molten psyche, which is flowing like hot wax. At that time, if you stamp it with uh, the cry to God, that becomes genuine. A saint... I think it was either Tulsidas or Eknathi, I'm not sure. He says that every tear that I weep for Rama is a thousand times more pleasurable than the greatest pleasures of the world. Even if you're crying for God, that's actually more enriching, more uplifting, more uh, fulfilling. And it is the conclusion of all the bhakti masters that God listens if we approach God with tears in our eyes. One monk told me that, you know, the reason I'm a monk today is, as a little boy, you know, I was quite taken up by the idea of being a monk. And once I prayed to God with tears in my eyes, I cried and prayed to God, let me become a monk in this life. And I'm sure it's not my efforts, it's not my studies, nothing, uh, none of them are the real factors. It's just that little boy decades ago who innocently, or sort of childishly, wept to God and God listened. So, now, of course, you cannot <laughs> um, do it uh, artificially. I remember revered Swami Chetanandaji. He went to Swami Bhuteshananji, and I was there at that time. He uh, traveled from India to United States, uh, from United States to India, and I was a young brahmachari at that time, and he went and bowed down to Swami Bhuteshanandaji, who was the president at that time, and said, I have a question, Maharaj. And he, Bhuteshanandaji, with his slow drawl, Balo, slowly you see, say, Sri Ramakrishna says, if someone cries sincerely to God for three days, then that person will get God vision. Now, at that time, um, Chetananji said, oh, he said that I was in Hollywood, and the actress in Hollywood said, that's easy. I can cry for three days or even more. So I'm going to do it. Will I get God vision? Will, it, will that work? 
<laughs> I don't remember Budeshanji's uh, answer, but not that way. Uh, it should come. Uh, then it should come from within. He says, Evagri says, strive to render your mind deaf and dumb at the time of prayer, and then you will be able to pray. Pray, meditate, japa, whatever you want to think of God. Deaf and dumb. Deaf means unable to hear. Dumb means unable to speak. Here, the ears, they are a symbol for the five sense organs. And the tongue speaking is a symbol for the five um, karmendriyas, the motor organs. So you have to silence the sensory system and the, uh, the motor organs. So silencing the motor organs means sitting down, not moving, not speaking. And speaking is at different levels. They're speaking with the tongue and there's mental chatter. And the five senses, not hearing, not seeing, not smelling, not tasting, not touching. So withdrawal from the sensory system. Five sense organs, five organs of action, ten organs, withdrawal from that. This is the meaning of deaf and dumb. Not easy, but this is a principle. When we do that, then only we can turn inwards. The Upanishad says, Paran chikhani vyatrinat swayam bhu tasmat parang pasyati nantaratman our senses have been turned outwards by design. We see things outside. We hear, smell, taste, touch. And our attention flows continually outwards. And therefore one does not see the self within. That the Atman within. Some dhira means hero. Patient one. Wise one. Avritta chakshun literally means covering their eyes. But basically it means this thing, deaf and dumb. Turns the attention inwards and sees the inmost self. So this turning away from the world for a while, this is very necessary for communion with God. Whatever you might do, by the way of avenging yourself on a brother who has done you some injustice, will turn into a stumbling block for you at the time of prayer. And connected to this he says, If you desire to pray as you ought, do not sadden anyone, otherwise you run in vain. <coughs> And then he quotes from the Bible. Leave your gift before the altar, summon on the mount. And go and go be reconciled with your brother, our Lord has said. And then you shall pray undisturbed. For resentment blinds the reason of the man who prays and casts a cloud over his prayer. The man who stores up injuries and resentments and yet fancies that he prays might as well draw water from a well and pour it into a cask that is full of holes. So put these together. If I have done, somebody has done me wrong, really done me wrong, and I hit back, maybe say a harsh word or cause some harm to that person, even though it seems justified. Strangely enough, at the time of prayer, at the time of meditation, at the time of japa, it will become a block. It will become an obstacle, stand before me. Why? The reason, the deep reason is you and your brother, you and your sister are one reality. Advaita Vedanta gives us the reason. 
samam pashyan hi sarvatra samavasthitam sthitam ishwaram the one who sees everywhere the same divinity the, the one divinity uh, alike in all beings that is the real yogi so it is one reality one divine reality what you are what i am we are one and the same reality so it's like i and that same reality is god so it's an offense against god when i hit back and try to hurt somebody else i am a person i'm treating him as a an a person and other somebody different from me and that's why i try to fight but that becomes an obstacle because that's not the truth the truth is that we are one he so careful here he says if you desire to pray as you ought really if you want your meditation your japa your communion with god to be deep do not sadden anyone see we might even say that i haven't said anything bad to anybody i just tell told the truth yeah. i'm just just being honest mark twain he said i have often seen that those who claim to be fond of the brutal truth usually fond of brutality more than the truth he goes so far as to say do not sadden anyone imagine how gentle and careful you have to be not just with our own behavior that sensitivity to others how is it being perceived and felt by others you see that but that's not in my hands but uh, we have to make an effort you are not responsible for the feelings of others but you are responsible for making an effort to see that the feelings of others are not hurt in spite of all our efforts if somebody feels hurt annoyed um then one must try to do our best to make up you can't help it you can't take care of the feelings of everybody in the world but one must be sensitive not just that i didn't do anything i'm just being myself no i'm being myself and also being very aware of what how my behavior my words might affect others if you genuinely love others parents people who love each other are very careful not to uh, hurt the feelings of the other person so gentle again swami bhuteshan ji i've seen he was uh, not only very kind unemotionally he was not sentimental but he was deeply loving and very gentle to the extent that um on the grass in one ashram it was written in the lawn uh, walking on the grass is strictly prohibited he said why use such harsh language why not say that please avoid walking on the glass <laughs> so, so gentle to that that extent storing up injuries and resentments that creates i am the one who's going to suffer if i have a whole list uh, in the hard drive a folder of people who have done wrong to me i am the one who's going to suffer those people have forgotten and moved ahead they <laughs> many of them don't even know that they th- they have done wrong to me some of them have but the thing is if i store it up i'm going to hurt myself and i am going to create this dark cloud of unhappiness in my mind not only that my spiritual efforts this is will be wasted might as well draw water from a well with hard work you're drawing water from a well and then you have a casket a cask in a pot in which you pour it and the pot is full of holes so that mental anger dislike of others of a whole list of uh, injuries and grievances and enemies which i have set up in my mind that those are the holes which drains away all the effects of uh, spiritual practice 
So what is the attitude with which, you, which we should pray or do spiritual practice? Prayer is the fair flower of meekness and mildness. Prayer is the fruit of joy and of thanksgiving. Happiness. I think it was Saint Teresa of Avila who said, a sad nun is a bad nun. Sad nun is a bad nun. I remember, without thinking it through, I just quoted this at Santa Barbara, which is a convent, where, where the nuns were sitting. And one of the nuns, in an annoyed voice, she said, and monks too, Swami. <laughs> sad monk is a bad monk. Yes, that's true. Not just nuns. Prayer is the exclusion of sadness and despondency. So I'm Vivekananda said that don't so show a gloomy face to the world. If you have got a gloomy face, lock yourself away in a room. You have no right to spread that disease across the world. Somebody told a monk who was unhappy, young monk who was unhappy. You have everything you want as a monk. What is it you want? Ask your heart. See, why are you unhappy as a monk? I've given up something in the world. Somewhere inside I want that. So as a matter of principle, I've given it up. As a matter of heart, the want is still there. There's a conflict and that manifests in the subconscious and comes up in the conscious mind as unhappiness, resentment. This is bad, that is bad. No, it's some conflict deep within. If you wish to pray worthily, deny yourself every hour. Play the part of a wise man, study and work very hard and learn to endure much for the sake of prayer. Whatever difficulty you patiently endure through love of wisdom will reap ripe fruits at the time of prayer. Very well said. This is the positive side of it. So in our day-to-day -day life, before the time of meditation, before the time of japa or prayer, when we encounter difficulties, face them without getting upset. And that takes effort. To try to maintain the serenity of, of heart, of a peace of mind within when we encounter difficult people, physical illness, obstacles in the world, anxieties, fears, maintain serenity inside. That effort, even if you fail, that effort will give you the fruit. You will see the result of that when you sit down to meditate. That will generate power. It takes effort to hold back something. When the horses Vivekananda gives this example. Horses pulling a chariot, they can run amok this way and that way. It takes a lot of effort and training to hold back their horses and then guide them on the way that you want them to go. Similarly, the horses in this body, it's a chariot, body-mind. The horses here are the senses and uh, the objects they run to are the roads on which they are running and the mind is the reins with which uh, you hold the horses in check, like the steering wheel. And the driver is the intellect. The more you hold back and control the horses, the more power you have. And that power we, we feel at the time of prayer. And restrain the mind in times of crisis, day-to-day -day mo moments. When we sit down in prayer and try to focus inward, you'll see the mind comes under control pretty easily. If you patiently endure difficulties through love of wisdom, through love of God, realization, whatever you call it, you will get the fruit at the time of prayer. Armed as you are against anger, do not submit to any powerful desire. 
for it is those which provide fuel for anger and anger in turn is calculated to cloud the eye of your spirit and destroy your state of prayer kama krodha so arjuna asks krishna why is it that we do wrong things even if we don't want to do wrong things still we do wrong things propelled as if it were by some inner force and krishna says there is this kama esha krodha esha rajoguna samudbhava born of rajas these are the two powerful passions desire and anger they are not two they are the same the flip side of desire is anger it's when my des- desire is thwarted that it it bursts out into anger if it there's somebody in front of me whom i can direct that um, frustration at it becomes anger otherwise if it's you know i do something um maybe something something natural uh, comes like covid or something I, there's no one person i can be a- angry at so it becomes frustration but if there's a person then the, it turns into rage at that person who's i think is obstructing my desire so it's the same thing desire and uh, passion and anger passion obstructed uh, becomes anger kamat krodho vijayate krishna says in the bhagavad gita from desire obstructed comes anger these are powerful emotions and they destroy immediately destroy any chance of meditation japa or prayer at least for the time being they cause damage spiritual damage therefore vivekananda says is a fool who cannot get angry it's a wise person does not get angry anger is there it's a power is a force one should have the power of uh, both desire and anger but under our control not us under their control do not pray by outward gestures only but bend your mind as well as to the as well to the perception of spiritual prayer with great fear fear here means alertness with care great care so not just bending down physically he says bend your mind with it also beautifully put often uh, we do endless prostrations in the uh, temples and that becomes mechanical after some time in some practices we have you to do so many thousand prostrations so it can obviously is going to become mechanical but uh, here he says not just bend your body but bend your mind also as we come before the lord bend the mind pray not to descend that your own desires be fulfilled you can be sure that they do not accord fully accord with the will of god once you have learned to accept this point pray instead that thy will be done in me in every matter ask him in this way for what is good and what confers profit on your soul for you yourself do not seek this so completely as he does so beautifully put we have devotion if you look around temples churches they are full i mean sometimes <laughs> not so much here a little bit more here in usa than in say europe but in india all the time their temples are full and it's not that everybody there is going there for enlightenment devotion to god salvation moksha no 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 they're going there somebody uh, wants a job somebody wants a disease to be cured somebody wants uh, um, a child to be married something like that somebody wants to get through examinations or some or most people they may not have specific desires and many of us do that also that we go there just for the you know let things be good 
for it's it's good to go and pray to god or do a puja worship god but good for what i have seen many people uh, they they do that very seriously that the blessings of god will be upon me and my endeavors my family myself and my endeavors things will go well for me nothing wrong in that that generates faith in god however that's still tied to my desires you might say why is uh, so what's what's the harm i hear a but coming there yes there's a but as long as we do that it is not spiritual it is religious you have a faith in god but you are using god i put it this way you're using god for your life god for my life or my life for god two different things god is like a convenience like a washing machine or a computer or a car which makes my life better with the blessings of god things are humming along nicely if they are not if there are problems then i'll fire god <laughs> because the whole point was a good life here and maybe i'll go to heaven afterwards and god has to give me those things then i'm willing to so this is what vivekananda calls shopkeeping religion but this is not the purpose the ultimate purpose of religion what is the ultimate purpose of religion god realization moksha mukti salvation every religion has different words for it that's the point of it the point of all of religion all of life is to take us there and that is you might say but i don't want that we do we want fulfillment we want to overcome suffering we want fulfillment and overcoming suffering ananda prapti dukkha nivritti it's just that we do not know how to get it and that's why he puts it so beautifully ask god to do what is good for you because he knows what is good for you far better than you know he says you do not seek this so completely as he does he said do what is good for me and well because i heard it in the class and the book says it and evagrius said it after all i really don't want you know devotion it will be good if i get those add on with with my desires fulfilled no those are the things which god wants to give us we don't want it completely it's not that we do not want it we want it after all you braved so much cold out there to come here so we do want it we do want spirituality but not enough and also in addition to spirituality there are other things but it's good one thing is sure we want to want it we don't want it entirely but really we do want that sincere we are sincere there we want to want it i i i wish i could have that sincere one pointed seeking for god which ramakrishna had or evagrius here had many times while i was at prayer so when you pray to god pray for devotion pray for knowledge pray for detachment from the world pray for purification of mind that i may not want anything else Uh, in the world uh, nirvashana holy mother said to a devotee who asked her he said pray for nirvashana vasana means desire for the world pray for nirvashana cleansing of the mind so that i don't want anything in the world it will be kind of boring no all of my wanting will be then collected into one powerful stream and it will go godward then i don't want finite things i want the infinite a friend of mine asked me when i was decided to become a monk what do you want Why do you why do you want to become a monk? Don't you want all these things which we are you know going into life for? I said yes, and I want I want everything. It's not that I want <laughs> you want a few things only, but I want everything. There's no limit to my wanting. That's why I want God. So I was 
what what do the americans say that you had a mouth on you in those days <laughs> smart alec <laughs> many times while i was at prayer i would keep asking for what seemed good to me yes so most of the people going to temples churches mosques are asking for what is good for our worldly life that's one kind of bhakti but that's worldly what we call naradiya bhakti sri ramkrishna says in this age naradiya bhakti that's bhakti for god i want god and god only nothing else and whatever it pleases to do what about my day to day life my worldly life whatever god pleases that's fine with me because i know god knows my own interest better than i do myself many times while i was at prayer i would keep asking for what seemed good to me again sorry i'm interrupting an important thing there are times and in the world it's unavoidable to ask for something personal hmm. somebody said swami you are not married you do not have children everything else we can give up but the welfare of the children we um, cannot we we sometimes have to ask when somebody beloved very close is suffering we want to have um you know that the suffering should should cease things like that Th- those times there's no compromise and there's no way of doing anything else then also we can ask definitely you are the children of god we can ask our um heavenly father mother whichever way you see god what you want you can ask god for that even if it's something personal even if it's a personal request or a desire a child can ask but always add but i accept your will whatever it is do good to all at the end add that many times while i was at prayer i would keep asking for what seemed good to me i kept insisting on my own request unreasonably putting pressure on the will of god i simply would not leave it up to his providence to arrange what he knew would turn out for my profit finally and this will we will uh, see it, it tallies with our experience finally when i obtained my request i became greatly greatly upset at having been so stubborn about getting my own way for in the end the matter did not turn out to be what i had fancied it would again and again we have seen we want something and really want it and ask god for it and ultimately you actually get it and it does not turn out well many times swami vivekananda says never desire anything for you will get it <laughs> you will get what you want and any time we desire the limited anything in this world anything good in this world desire the limited we are tying ourselves to this world and the result is never happiness by the time you get it may you may not want it anymore or you may have moved on or it may come as a big trouble to you big burden to you what else is there that is good besides god alone therefore let us cast all our concerns upon him and it will be well with us certainly he who is wholly good is necessarily that kind of person who gives only good gifts and he says undistracted prayer is the highest act of the intellect the best use of the mind is to pray to god take the name of god do japa or meditate upon god think about it this way right now those who are initiated into a mantra the mantra 
and whatever other thought is coming to my mind compare this mantra with this other thought which is more important which is better almost always you will find the mantra is better more important sometimes there may be some urgent work to be done that that can be dealt with quickly but most of the time the mind just keeps on spinning away churning away um, you know going on on ruts which are uh, habits of thought thousands and thousands of thoughts just a useless pattern churning away it's much better to re- replace those thoughts with the mantra with the prayer what do you pray for first first of all pray to be purified from your passions chitta shuddhi second pray to be delivered from ignorance third pray to be freed from all temptation and abandonment okay three things and i was just thinking it's exactly the structure of sadhana which we i talk about in vedanta you know the structure i have often mentioned advaita vedanta says you are brahman what is the problem then the problem is we don't know it we don't feel it we don't think it's it's real for us we may even hear about it believe it even understand it to some extent but we don't see it as real so that is called ignorance ignorant mind is the first layer of problem solution for ignorance knowledge how does knowledge come gyana yoga but then we are doing that nothing is working the mind is still restless so the restless mind is the second level of problem and it is restless because of temptations all kinds of thoughts in the mind so the solution for the restless mind is focused mind and then meditation is the method and the third one is the impure mind third level by meditation also is not possible it's because of the impurities in the mind impure mind solution for impure mind pure mind no brainer and uh, method karma yoga so that's the three cross three matrix i often speak about but look here three things pray to be purified from your passions pure pure mind impure mind pure mind then he says pray to be f- uh, freed from all temptation um and abandonment i think here he means uh, graha and tyaga getting something and getting rid of something else that's what what the mind is always doing raga dvesha restless mind and then he says pray to be delivered from ignorance of course what he means by ignorance is slightly different in christian theology but still you see the structure is basically the same this was particularly illuminating for me in your prayer seek only after justice and the kingdom of god now this is a term you come across again and again in christian theology justice not so much at all in, in uh, hindu philosophy so what does exactly this mean because justice today means something else it's law and um, you know the punishment of of crime and all of that that's justice and here he explains justice that is to say virtue said oh okay in that sense kingdom of god that is to say true spiritual knowledge beautiful then all else will be given to you besides it is part of justice so is virtue that you should pray not only for your own purification but also for that of every man whether you pray along with the brethren or alone strive to make your prayer more than a mere habit make it a true inner experience this is simple but powerful instruction 
So I pray, I repeat the words, I sit properly, I, I breathe properly, I focus inwards. Is there an inner experience or am I just going through the motions? If you do it long enough, there will come a period of mechanical uh, habit. So when I remember, when I see that, no problem in that. When I notice that, try to make it an inner experience. That, that feeling should come inside. Quality of prayer, he says, is a respectful gravity. Beautiful word, putting it in a dignity. See, respectful gravity. It has something of a deep felt sorrow about it. It's not sorrow, it's happiness. But the seriousness that comes to us when we are deeply sad, that seriousness, that inwardness, that quietness, that solitariness that should come in prayer. Prayer is the flight of the alone to the alone. First alone, small a. Next alone, capital A. What is the capital A alone? God. The ultimate reality. What's the small a? Us. We are alone. We're born alone and fated to die alone. So, alone to the alone. Then he says, if your spirit still looks around. Spirit means mind. If your mind still looks around at the time of prayer, then it does not yet pray as a monk. You are no better than a man of affairs, worldly affairs, engaged in a kind of landscape gardening. <laughs> what is praying as a monk? Then there's a footnote. For Evagrius, a monk is more a spirit than a mere man. He has a very interesting thing he says. He lives on a plane where the light of the blessed trinity is more real than the light of the sun. Uh, light of God is more real than the light of the sun. This is so profound. What is the light of the sun? The light by which we see. Light of the sun, light of the electric bulb. Mm -hmm. How do we see this? With the light of the eye. How are we aware of the eye? With the light of the mind. How are we aware of the mind? With the light of lights, pure consciousness itself. Mm. Or if you are devotional, it's the light of God. The Gita says, that which is night to all beings, there the enlightened one, the, the spiritual seeker is awake. And that which is a day for others is darkness to him. What does this mean? The spiritual seeker is awake, awake to God, is awake to the Atman within, to reality as it is. The world of, of mere worldly affairs of people and things and things of the world are like mere shadows. That person may be aware of them, but no importance. Yeah. But very great importance to the, the spiritual life within. And the worldly person is just the opposite. Very aware of money, of position in society, of Facebook likes, of uh, uh, you know, how things are going in the world with my own health and all of that. that that's what it's all about. Spirituality, hmm, either not at all interested, why? It's like a waste of time for them. Or only when I have some leisure, when things are going well, I can go and listen to a lecture or read a book here and there. That's it. Somebody asked at the beginning of the COVID, I was giving a Vedanta talk. At this time, should we, uh, we have to study Vedanta when, when COVID started. I said, this is the time. Spirituality must come to our rescue when we need it. If it is no, of no use to us in day-to-day -day practical life, then it's just theory. It's just nice talk and books and philosophy. 
No, it must come, it stand by us when we need it. It must be able to help us, whoever we are, at whatever level we are. It must help us to some extent at least. So this is the time when spirituality is put to test. Am I the Atman or the body? Is it serious or just a matter of speculation? Do, do I really believe in God or the moment I'm in trouble, then I forget about God. There's no time. There's COVID now. No time to think about God. But it's true. People become more spiritual at times of trial. There is so many reports I've heard across the world. Across the world, literally. In this time, this is the time when the whole world was in crisis. And many people came to spiritual life. Those who were there already, they deepened their spiritual life. Important. When you pray, keep your memory under close custody. Do not let it suggest your own fancies to you. But have it convey the awareness of your reaching out to God. Remember this, the memory has a powerful proclivity for causing detriment to the spirit at the time of prayer. So when we cut out the world, you know, you're deaf and dumb. You're not seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Not trying to um, um, do anything, sit quietly and turn inwards. Maybe repeat a mantra or do something uh, spiritual inwards. Then only one thing is active, your mind. Since nothing is coming in from outside, the mind starts drawing from memory. The memory sometimes becomes hyperactive at that time. So many thoughts occur to you. He said that my mind was very was not so bad when I did not meditate. When I started meditating, my mind became restless. The mind always was restless. You never noticed it. Now when you are meditating, you are beginning to notice what the mind is. So, he says, keep a close watch on your memory. I will not listen. One monk, I think Turiyanandaji probably, somebody told a monk, have, imagine um, a sign on your chest which says, no admission. And it's something from the world outside, but something also inside, the memory. No admission. Unless it's the mantra, it's my Ishta Devata, it is God, the prayer which I'm concentrating on. Other than that, no admission. Another Vedanta teacher put it this way. Even when you're praying to God, use, use, use the Vedantic principles. Desha Kala Vastu Bandha That means lock, a space lock, a time lock and an object lock. What is the space lock? My mind will not go outside this heart chakra. For example, wherever you are meditating, here or here, whatever. So this is uh, space-wise. Mind will not think of anything outside this, uh, any space outside this heart. Time, from now for the next 30 minutes. For, so lock it in this time, beginning from here to begin, ending there. No other thought, no other consideration will come in. Object lock. Here is the form, blissful form of Krishna or Ramakrishna. Here is the um, mantra of uh, Krishna, Ramakrishna, Rama, whatever, Jesus, that I am holding on to. So that's the object lock. What name and what form? Space lock, time lock, object lock. Lock, you, know, you, you bind it. It's a Vedantic principle, but you see it's applying it to bhakti. <coughs> We seek after virtues for the sake of attaining to the inner meaning of created things. We pursue these latter, that is to say, the inner meanings of what is created for the sake of attaining to the Lord who has created them. It is in the state of prayer that he is accustomed to manifest himself. 
so inwardness so virtuous life is very clear it's instrumental you're a good person not just for the sake of being a good person you're a good person because it will a good person can pray a good person can meditate a good person can repeat the name of god that's the real per- uh, from a spiritual perspective that's the real purpose of being a righteous person that's the higher end of it utility of it the state of prayer can be aptly described as a habitual state of imperturbable imperturbable calm it snatches to the heights of reality the spirit who loves wisdom and which is truly spiritualized by the most intense love so in the midst of struggle there's a deep calm within i was trying to summarize in the second chapter krishna describes the state of an enlightened person jivan mukta sthita pragya the words are very interesting stabilized wisdom so those who are advanced in vedanta they ask this question i get what is being said i sort of it's not difficult uh, i mean I, i get it what is being said but it goes away i get it now and it floats away or i get it but i'm unable to put it into practice in day to day life so in that context enlightenment is described by krishna as stabilized wisdom so wisdom plus stability it's there all the time effortless effortlessly now what characterizes a person of stabilized wisdom krishna says four things there at the end of the second chapter of the bhagavad gita these are practices advanced practices for the rest of us this is all everything that he has said here in one or two lines four things one is the ability to be samadhista to be absorbed in the inner reality the limitless consciousness within or god within can i have i developed the state of prayer japa and meditation to that intensity that for the at least a period of time i can forget the world no matter how troublesome and be immersed in the peace and bliss of god that's one it's called samadhi be established in the oneness of god ekatvam the second is at the level of the mind so this is at the level of realization at the level of mind samatvam krishna says dukkheshu anudvignamana sukheshu vigatas priya in the midst of troubles so troubles will keep coming even if you're enlightened if you look at the lives of saints we look at life of evagrius also so many troubles hard life much harder life than we have but evenness of mind not upset in the middle of upsetting circumstances and in the middle of when things are going riproaringly well things are going very well indeed vigata spriya there is no hunger or thirst for holding on to things let it come let it be let it go so that evenness of mind not depending not a slave to external circumstances or people centered in god evenness of mind at the level of mind evenness of mind characterizes the enlightened one and uh, it's a practice for the rest of us third at the level of our behavior how do we what's the philosophy of life how do we deal with life with people यसर्वत्र अनभिस्नेय तत्तत्प्राप्य शुभाशुभम नाभिनंदन्ति न द्वेष्टि हाउ डज दिस पर्सन रिएक्ट टू द वर्ल्ड लिव्ड इन द वर्ल्ड व्हेन गुड थिंग्स हैपन और बैड थिंग्स हैपन प्रेफर्ड और यू नो प्लेजेंट और अनप्लेजेंट थिंग्स हैपन डिटैच्ड डज नॉट चीयर व्हेन थिंग्स गो हिज वे डज नॉट लैमेंट व्हेन थिंग्स डू नॉट गो हिज वे डिटैचमेंट एट द लेवल असंगत्वम एट द लेवल ऑफ इंटरेक्शन विद द वर्ल्ड 
and the fourth one is yada sangharate chayam kurmangani vabharata you have the ability to control you know the, our senses by which we see hear smell taste touch by which we talk walk around the sensory system the ability to throw a switch switch it off to cut off contact with the world to step back from the world he says like a tortoise withdrawing its limbs into a shell so these are the characteristics of the enlightened one and advanced practices for the seeker after enlightenment what are the four i'm just repeating for you what a sadhu said in hindi bodh mein ekatvam at the level of your realization oneness chit mein samatvam at the level of your mind evenness evenness a serenity vyavahar mein asangatvam at the level of um, transaction with the world with people detachment let it come let it be let it go and the whole thing the foundation is a power one must develop of throwing a switch and withdrawing indriya samhara indriya nigraha four none of them are easy but they are powerful practices for stabilizing wisdom he just puts it like this the state of prayer can be described as a state habitual state of imperturbable um imperturbable imperturb- uh, what is this yeah not to be perturbed calm yeah huh. he says here this i liked he's a well known theologian if you're a theologian you truly pray if you truly pray you're a theologian <laughs> we normally think a philosopher you know especially this is an important thing in vedanta so a person who is a vedantist is not just a person who listens to youtube talks and reads lots of books one must be centered in the atman or in god and if you are centered in atman or in god you are truly a vedantist if you are truly a vedantist you would be centered in god just a couple of more and, and i'll conclude If you wish to pray then it is God whom you need he it is who gives prayer to the man who prays on that account call upon him saying hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come so if a desire for prayer desire for meditation desire for japa comes you are blessed for at that moment at least we want god if you want inwardness peace you want to transcend everything forget and stay with the infinite it's it's the most precious thing in life it comes once in a while and it's a gift from god even in advaita vedanta which seems so soaringly um, you know the absolute beyond even god it starts with this uh, prayer ishvara anugraha deva pumsa advaita vasana it is by the great grace of god that one gets a liking for non duality also this is very beautiful the process of prayer whether japa prayer whatever it is when you withdraw as it were little by little from the flesh because of your ardent longing for god and turn away from every thought which comes from senses or memory so senses from outward things memory from inside any thought which is coming from them turn away from it 
and you are filled with reverence and joy at the same time then you can be sure that you are drawing near that country whose name is prayer <laughs> so beautifully put look at this this is so vedantic when you are praying do not fancy that divinity is like some image formed within yourself avoid following your allowing your mind to be impressed with the seal of some particular shape but rather free from all matter draw near the immaterial being and you will attain to understanding stand guard over your mind keeping it free of concepts at the time of prayer so that it will remain in its own deep calm a man in chains cannot run nor can the mind that is enslaved to passion see the see the place of spiritual prayer it is dragged along and tossed by these passion filled thoughts and cannot stand firm and tranquil pray with fitting reverence and without anxiety sing with understanding and with attention and then you will soar aloft like young eagles singing of the psalms quiets the passion and calms the intemperance of the body prayer on the other hand prepares the mind to put its own powers into operation prayer is the activity which is appropriate to the dignity of the spirit so beautiful and he says persevere in your holy prayer with all sails unfurled this so immediately reminds you of sri ramakrishna <laughs> he lived near the bank of the ganga so his little boats would ply on the river and he would notice that the boats which raised the sail they caught a wind the wind was always blowing and those boats then effortlessly sailed along those who did not raise the sail they would have to you know use a lot of energy in rowing so he would when people asked him about grace he said the wind of grace is always blowing raise your sail raise your sail look here 1500 years before sri ramakrishna perceive in your holy prayer with all sails unfurled at the time of temptations make use of short and intense prayer just as bread is nourishment for the body virtue for the mind so is spiritual prayer nourishment for the intelligence and so on it goes very beautiful very interesting this is for monks but something that we can learn a monk is a man remember he was in a community of monks he was teaching them a monk is a man who is separated from all and who is in harmony with all how interesting a monk is second a monk is a man who considers himself one with all men because he constantly he seems constantly to see himself in every man just in contrast with this once a monk um said i'm going to write a book about an enlightened person 
you know, he just behaves like a fool externally. But inside he is enlightened. He just has contempt for everybody. I said, wait a minute. That's not very enlightened. That's a total misunderstanding. There's a complete misunderstanding of enlightenment. Enlightened person can have no contempt for anybody. Because you see the same divinity and there's no question of contempt for anybody. That's just arrogance. <laughs> How do you know that you are depending on God uh, internally? So he says, trust in God, this is for the monks of course, trust in God for the needs of your body, then it will be clear to you that you are also relying upon him for the needs of your spirit. <laughs> so externally if you depend on God, that's a test. I remember once I was in the Himalayas, I had some money with me, I lived by myself. Um, and I begged for my food. But then one monk told me, next time try it without any money at all. I didn't spend that money, but I had money. Just to come and go and some, I'd set aside some, I'd kept some money. He said, try it without any money. So, when you depend entirely on God for your external needs, then you can be sure. Otherwise, it might be, you might be cheating yourself inside. Alright, so this is a beautiful teaching coming across to us from one and a half millennia ago, long, long back in a land far, far away, but how it speaks to us today, here and, here and now. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu We pray to Jesus Christ and Mother Mary, we pray to Sri Ramakrishna, Masharada, Swami Vivekananda to bless all of us with peace and the gift of prayer, inward calm, detachment, and spiritual dignity, the evenness of mind and that intuition of oneness which pervades the entire universe. Blessings for a wonderful festive season and for a wonderful new year. Thank you so much.